Thank you so much for coming. I just want to remind us, today is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is the Sunday when the church has historically celebrated the last week of Jesus' life. And it's profound to think about uh, the way the biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, unfold. They spend a great deal of their time in each of the, bi- the biographies in the last week, digging into the last week. And you know, I'm going to make this comment several times through what we read today. It reads very much like a first-hand account. John Elliott's mother passed away this week, and I had some, a chance to spend some time with, with John and his family. And when you do that, and you're experiencing grief, Often what you will do is, and and you guys know this from experience, you've observed it before, you will retrace the last steps, the last couple of weeks, the the time they went into the hospital, what you were experiencing, what you were feeling. That's exactly what you would expect of first-hand witnesses, especially witnesses who had seen what had transpired in Jesus' last week. That last week, of course, began with cheers and palm-waving. And it ended with jeers and curses. Yesterday, two of my sons came over to help me do some yard work. And my boys, are, are my men, are all grown and out of the house. One of my children was too busy. They'll remain nameless, Jordan. But the other two came over, and after we'd finished yard work, we watched a comedian on Netflix. And he really is great. And he was actually talking about comedy. And the title of the thing is, Thank God for Jokes. He was making the point, he's one of these comedians who's also very poignant. And he was making the point that this stuff is powerful. This comedy stuff that they do is really powerful. It's really important. And he referenced a couple of times the whole deal with the French satirical magazine, Charlie Hebdo, and that, you know, some of their writers were killed because they had crafted a cartoon that ridiculed the prophet Muhammad. He was talking about how costly this stuff is. Well, you and I need to be reminded that what we do here is often very costly. As we were talking about this morning before we started, it honestly, it hasn't cost us that much. But it can be very costly. I don't know if you looked at the news this morning, but two churches this morning were blown up in Egypt. Two Coptic Christian churches were blown up in Egypt. So today we celebrate the costliestness of it all, uh, what Jesus uh, did for us. And today, not any snappy stories or illustrations and not application points at the end. This is what we usually do. We break open what we believe to be God's Word and we look at it and we apply it to our lives this morning. We're just going to reflect. We're just going to read the story and reflect. We're going to go to the end of the week instead of the beginning of the week. We're going to talk about the trial. And what I've been praying for and what I'm hoping for us this morning is that we leave this morning and we go, wow, and it stays with us all week. And we just think about Jesus this week. And we prepare our hearts for the great celebration that we're going to have next week. So I want us to start this morning. We're going to reflect and remember But I want us to start this morning by reading Psalm 118. And we're going to read Psalm 118 responsively because Psalm 118 was the song that they were singing to Jesus when he came into Jerusalem on that first Sunday. Oh, not on the first Sunday, but at the beginning of the week when he's being brought into Jerusalem. And that's really fascinating. Scholars will tell us that they believe that this is the song that was sung to conquering generals 
or kings, when they came back in after having made conquest, they're coming back into Jerusalem, and the crowds would have sung Psalm 118 to the king. And some scholars will even suggest that it would have been said or sung responsively. So someone up on the wall of the gate singing out one part while the king with the army behind him is singing out the other part. And we're going to practice that this morning. We're going to read Psalm 118 responsively. I will read the uh, light part and you, like the crowd inside Jerusalem, ready to welcome the king, will read the dark part. Get your palm. At the end of this, yes, we're going to wave it. You're going back to kindergarten. And let's stand together out of reverence for God's word as we read responsively the song that the Jerusalemites were singing over Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. And think about the context of that. Remember the history of that? This is the greatest hits psalm that would have been sung by uh, people over the, the conquering king. And here's Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and they choose to sing that song as if to say, maybe Maybe this guy is the one we've been waiting for. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord strike in the sunlight of the kings. The Lord strike in the slip of the The Lord strike in the sunlight of the I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he's not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of, of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the day of the Lord, who is the righteous answer. I will give you thanks for your destiny. You have become my The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All right, stop. You're going to read that part again because that was really cool. All right, so we're starting over on this verse. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. The house of the man, joining the festival procession, up to the horns of the altar. So, Father, we ask that today you would help us remember what our Savior did. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we bless him today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, I want to set up our reading this morning with a few observations. And first, I want to remind you of our theme. Our theme, the way that we framed the conversation about Jesus over the last several weeks in our Lenten series, we've said that Jesus is kinetic the definition for kinetic energy. Energy that a body possesses by virtue of being in motion. All right, I'm going to throw this ball, and in mid-flight, I'm going to say now. 
And that's the moment at which I, I want you to just contemplate kinetic energy. Energy that's created by me, but it's in the ball. The ball contains kinetic energy. Pete, you ready? All right, here we go. Now, kinetic energy is energy that a body possesses by being in motion. The tennis ball had kinetic energy at that point, and had I thrown, instead of a tennis ball, a bowling ball, there would have been more kinetic energy involved, and Pete's response would have been a little more dramatic. The image we've used over the last few weeks and the point that we've tried to make is that Jesus is kinetic. He's spiritually kinetic. He carried with him throughout his life and ministry the energy of heaven. And when kinetic Jesus, and I want you to see this, when kinetic Jesus, moving toward his destiny and carrying within himself the energy of heaven, when his life collides with another life, that collision creates enormous energy and change. When kinetic Jesus collides with another life, it creates energy and change. If you know his story, then you've seen this clearly in his life here on earth. First of all, Jesus was on the move. Jesus was purposeful. He was possessed by the energy of heaven in, in one of the biographies, Luke 9, 15. Luke, the biographer, makes this observation at a really critical point in Jesus' story. Luke says, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus was on a mission. He moved with clear and profound purpose, and he wouldn't be deterred from that purpose. In fact, several times late in his ministry, he told his followers that he was going to die soon. He knew where he was headed. He knew what this was pointing toward. Jesus was filled with the energy of heaven. He was on the move, and when he interacted with others, his energy created movement in them. We've seen the same thing over and over again the last several weeks as we've examined the story of various people in Jesus' life. Nicodemus. The woman at the well, the man born blind, the woman caught in adultery, over and over again, kinetic Jesus collides with another life and stuff changes. Stuff happens. We heard about the same thing this morning through Jan's story. Kinetic Jesus colliding into a life and stuff gets rearranged. And the principle of kinetic Jesus moving with great spiritual energy toward his destiny, colliding with those around him, was in evidence to the very end of his life. Look, Jesus was not a spiritual guru. He was not flower-toting hippie. The comedian that we listened to yesterday talked about Jesus. He spoke with a Woody Allen accent and described him as a Jewish socialist. The comedian said, let's face it, Jesus was basically Bernie Sanders. Jesus was not an ancient Near Eastern Bernie Sanders. He was a cosmic energy source. He was the quintessential change agent. He was kinetic, and everywhere he went, stuff happened. Strange analogy, stay with me. I'm going to talk way beyond my pay grade, but when an object with kinetic energy collides with another object, energy is passed from one object to the other. Even with a little tennis ball, when I pass that to Pete, there is kinetic energy, and energy is transferred to Pete. That would have been more obvious to Pete, as I said, if I had thrown a baseball. And those collisions, when one object collides with another object, you're back to high school physics, sorry. I told you I was talking about my pay grade. When those collisions happen, those collisions can be elastic or inelastic. An elastic collision means that 
No kinetic energy is lost. There is a perfect transfer of energy. In an inelastic collision, some kinetic energy is lost, usually through heat. So, you know, if I threw a bowling ball at Pete, Pete would absorb that and he would experience kinetic energy. Kinetic energy would be transferred to him. And if we were to examine him with a precise thermometer, his hands would be a little hot after having caught the bowling ball. And that means that some of that kinetic energy is lost in the form of heat. All of you have seen the pendulum balls. You pick one up and makes one go out the other side. You pick two and it makes two go out the other side. That, that's a perfect example of kinetic energy. And that is almost as close as you get in nature to an elastic collision. Because the objects are as round as we can make objects here on planet Earth, and they're really solid mass, very little energy is lost to heat. So that's why those things will go for a long time, but they won't go forever, because in nature, there are almost no places where collisions of that kind are perfectly elastic. I'm making a point. There are almost no places in nature where collisions of objects carrying kinetic energy are truly elastic collisions. Collisions are almost always inelastic. Energy is always lost in areas mostly, as I said, through heat. So I want you to think about that as a spiritual analogy. Perfectly elastic spiritual collisions would result in utter and absolute disobedience, but it almost never happens. Anytime a life collides with Jesus, there's almost always, even in the most obstinate cases, there's almost always some residue of curiosity. And perfectly elastic spiritual kinetic collisions would result in absolute and utter obedience. But of course, in nature, that almost never happens. The friction of our lives and our character against the kinetic collision with Jesus results in lives transformed and obedience, and yet there's still the residue of our old self that we carry with us. There's not perfect obedience. All right, let me stretch this weird analogy one step further, if I may. I think these kinds of collisions also depend on uh, the nearness or the directness of the collision. So if you allow me to set our story up this morning... For example, if you're on um, 95 and you're headed down toward Richmond and you have to pull off the side of the road, you know what it's like to experience the ancillary effects of kinetic energy. That's my term. That's not the technical physical term. When a car comes past you in the lane that's right next to you driving 85 or 90 miles an hour because that's what people are doing on their way down to Richmond, you feel the car shake. You feel the effects of the, the wind created by the kinetic energy of the car. So you'll feel the ancillary effect even though you don't feel the direct effect of the collision. Of course, what happened to you and your reaction would be entirely different if the car actually plowed into the back of you. That would be a truly 
absolute collision. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that maybe some of us have been in that place spiritually. We have found a way, and maybe this doesn't apply to any of you, but maybe. Maybe some of us have found a way to keep collision with Jesus at an arm's length. And we've experienced the shock of him passing by occasionally, sometimes, you know, in a, a kind of distant, romantic way, or we'll feel some warmth about spiritual things, but, but we've never allowed our lives to really be plowed into head-on by Jesus. I think perhaps one of our figures, Pilate, was in that place. So hold that thought. We'll read the story in a second. Final thing to set us up for the reading of John 18 and 19 this morning. I'm going to suggest that there are four observations that John is intent on us getting. These are things that John is pretty clearly, he wants to drive into us on the basis of this story. And as we're reading through it, I'm going to point to these and remind you of them. The first one I would say is, John seems more intent honestly, to make this point than almost any other point through this section. John wants to make the point, this was not a fair trial. Jesus was railroaded. It's an important point for them, partly for how it interacts with the other three observations that we're going to talk about, and partly for what it says about Jesus and how Jesus handled himself in the midst of an obviously rigged trial. Second observation that repeats itself in John's recounting of this story is Pilate is intrigued. He's provoked by Jesus. Don't sleep on that. Pilate was disturbed and it put Pilate off his game. I want you to think about what an amazing observation that is for John to have experienced and for the first disciples. These guys are mostly unschooled Galilean fishermen. Their rabbi is Jesus, who's also from the backwater of Galilee. They have seen Jesus become something of a little rock star in Galilee, but now Jesus has come to Washington, D.C. And he's being taken into the cabinet meeting in the White House. And here is their rabbi face-to-face with the man himself. And he's unintimidated. He doesn't cower far from it. Pilate seems to be intimidated. Of course, this also proves the point of our whole series. You cannot be near the orbit of Jesus and not be affected by his connectivity. Third observation, these events, everything we're reading, are driven on the one hand by the hatred of the Jewish leaders of Jesus, maybe their fear. But also, on the other hand, these events are driven by the hand of the Father. Both things are equally obvious in Jesus' mind and will eventually become obvious to the disciples as well. Final observation. Jesus is fully aware of the significance of the events. Jesus is completely engaged, fully aware, fully understands, fully prescient. He knows where things are headed. He knows why they're headed that way. He knows how this will turn out. This is so clearly the case that there are times when he simply seems to be above the whole proceeding. John 18 and 19. I do not have this on the screen. I want you to listen carefully and intently, and I would love for you to follow along with me. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 18. If you have it on your phone, do that as well. 
and we're going to read what led up to and the trial of Jesus this morning. And I want you to keep these four observations in mind as we read and this week. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And there are just so many little details in this chronicle that put us in mind of a first-person witness. There is just no question that this comes from the hand of a first-person witness, these little editorial comments. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some of the officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Can't you see the scene? Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Observation number D, Jesus is fully aware. Now, don't you wonder in these interactions, I often wonder, what language were they speaking? This is a little detail, it's not going anywhere, but the language of the streets in Jerusalem was Aramaic. It was a crossbreed between Hebrew and the language of Babylon during the time when they had been taken into Babylon. Close relative of Hebrew, but it was different from Hebrew. They would have also spoken some Hebrew and they probably spoke some Greek. The Romans spoke Italian, Latin, and they may have spoken some Greek. I wonder if they're speaking to him in Aramaic, or are they choosing Greek as maybe their common language? It wouldn't have been either of their first languages. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. That's who they're looking for. And Jesus said, I am he. And look at this note. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. Can't you hear, John? Judas was standing with them. He should be with us. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, Jesus asked them, who do you want? Jesus of Nazareth they replied, trying to regain their composure. Jesus answered, I told you I'm he. Look, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. Down to verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Peter, always the impetuous one. The servant's name was Malchus, and I love that detail. He's going to come up later in this story. John remembers his name. He must have heard one of the other guards say, Malchus, watch out! Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Check this. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Again, observation D. Jesus is fully aware of the significance. He knows where this is headed. Also, observation C. Remember? The hand of the Father is behind this. God's hand is behind this. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him, and they brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. We get details here, again, exactly as we would expect them from an eyewitness. 
And they would have especially, of course, remembered the details of this week. Now let's skip down to verse 19. We're going to skip for now over the part that uh, damages Peter's reputation. Through this story, Peter, one of Jesus' best friends, ends up denying him three times. Meanwhile, verse 19, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Look, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who've heard me. Surely they know what I've said. And when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? Okay, if I said something wrong, Jesus replied, recovering but not retaliating. Testify to what's wrong. But if I spoke truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. We're now in the dark of night. They move over to Caiaphas. It's already clear, observation A, that this trial is not fair. If we handed this into a competent lawyer's hands, Rob could get this thing overturned in minutes. Let's go down to verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the place of the Roman governor. He's already been through Caiaphas. The night now has transpired with Jesus being tossed back and forth, questioned and ridiculed. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So this is the most holy weekend for the Jews. And the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, the powers that be, are choosing to spend their weekend this way. They cannot now walk into the palace because this is the territory of the Gentiles. And they want to keep themselves clean and pure, not to mention they're trying to kill someone. They want to keep themselves clean and pure for the Passover. So Pilate came out to them. He's barely had his first cup of coffee, and he asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? Okay, if he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law, mounting evidence of observation A. This is not a fair setting. This is not a fair trial. Now, also remember the relationship here. Pilate is the Roman-appointed governor over the land of Palestine, and Rome is an occupying force. So there's a weird relationship between the Jews and Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to be in Palestine. He certainly doesn't want to be hearing these weird charges that they're bringing against this backwater Galilean rabbi. Pilate's no doubt heard of Jesus. He might be a little interested in some of the weird things he's heard, but he cannot for the life of him figure out why this is disturbing his very early morning, and clearly he wants this to go away. He doesn't want to be involved in this. He just wants to keep the peace. By the way, Pilate is mentioned in four sources outside of the New Testament. There's an inscription known as the Pilate Stone, which was found in 1961 by an archaeologist. I think it was part of a stair construction 
in an existing building, and when they tore the building down, they found this stone with an inscription that references Pilate and confirmed both his office and his title, as he's referred to in the New Testament. There's also a brief mention of him by various ancient historians, Tacitus, Philo of Alexandria, and Josephus. The Jewish leaders continue, but we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. And this is clearly what they're after. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die because Jesus was fully aware he knew what was coming. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, okay, are you the king of the Jews? Because I've heard this weird phrase and I've got to find something to accuse you of or even talk to you about. Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed me over to you. What have you done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Look, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Okay, what? Pilate must be completely confused. This is not the kind of man he expected. This is not the kind of dialogue he expected. And this is not the hour for an honest trial. You are a king then, Pilate said, trying to get his footing. Jesus answered, okay, you say I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What? Again, Pilate, thoroughly confused, but he's already a bit intrigued. He tries to get philosophical with Jesus. Okay, what is truth? Pilate retorted. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against this guy. But it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. You want me to release the king of the Jews? Pilate, hoping for a quick resolve. Can you hear it? Pilate wants to let Jesus go. This is not a fair trial. They shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. In a little editorial note, Barabbas had been part of an uprising. First half of chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Now, this sounds cruel, and it was, but I believe that Pilate is still trying to give Jesus a way out. I think he wants to punish him to placate the Jewish leaders. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Observations A and B. Once again, Pilate clearly knows this is not a fair trial. I also believe that Pilate is provoked, maybe even spooked by Jesus. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis of charge against this man. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. 
and he went back inside the palace. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. Where do you come from? Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And this is the high point of the story. Pilate is intrigued, he's confused, he's moved, he's afraid, and he's fascinated by Jesus. This is what kinetic Jesus does. He moves into our lives, and we are moved and shaped and changed and alarmed and maybe even repulsed or we're drawn in, but we are not the same. And Jesus answered, you have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. C and D, right? These events are happening because of the anger, fear, jealousy, hatred of the Jews for Jesus, and also because God wills it. And Jesus is fully aware of all that's going on and what it means, and he's the only one who is. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Good grief, won't these people go away, Pilate's thinking. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king, but Caesar, the chief priest, answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. All right, I don't know where you are this morning. I doubt it, but there may be a person or two here today who's in the place of the Jewish leaders, and you are violently opposed to Jesus. I don't know what possessed you to come to church today, but welcome. I'd love to talk, but I I suspect there's very little I can say, right? Some of you may be in the place of Pilate. You've been mildly curious, and you've found a way to keep Jesus at arm's distance because it's too weird, or it's too involved, or those people are too hypocritical. You never allowed yourself to get close enough to really feel the pull of his weight on your life. But you're here today. And because you're here, you're in a place where he can speak. But I suspect most of us are disciples. Having already had the course of our lives altered by an encounter with Jesus. So a couple of notes today and let's end. Number one... Today is a day for us to remember and reflect on our Savior. Today is a time for us to be thankful for what he did for us and to be amazed at his wisdom and his courage and his prescience. Also, today is the day for us to remember that the transfer of energy is never perfect. And our connections with Jesus are inelastic some of the connectivity is lost in the exchange. So today is a day for us to repent, to remember and reflect and repent. 
So let's spend a moment doing that. Let's spend a moment in silence in prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, we remember you today, and we give you permission to bring yourself fully to our minds this week. Lord, we also repent. Father, we sinned against you in, in thought and word and deed by what we've done and by what we've left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We ask you to have mercy on us and forgive us. We are blown away and know that you are delighted to do so because of the work of our Savior Jesus. In his mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, see you next week. We're going to have some fun.